Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is where we're headed today. And as you're turning there, uh, this time of year is always a very musical time of year, isn't it? Have any of you gotten any Christmas songs stuck in your head yet? Any of those earworms crawling around in your brain? I mean, Christmas music is playing everywhere. It's on commercials, in the stores, on the radio. And among all the Christmas pop songs, one of the pieces of music that makes its way around this time of year are selections from Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah. Any of you familiar with that? Yeah? It's a two-hour work of music for choir and orchestra that tells the story of Jesus from the very beginning. And it most famously contains the hallelujah chorus, you know? Hallelujah, hallelujah. You know that, of course. But this time of year, we're much more likely to hear one of the earlier lines in Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born. Right? You you know that. You've heard that. But even lesser known are its opening words. The words that begin the whole two-hour event of Handel's Messiah. After a brief overture from the orchestra, the strong voice of a tenor sounds out with the words, Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. And these words, if you're looking at your Bible, are taken straight from Isaiah chapter 40. Straight from the beginning of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, a couple hundred years later, after Handel's Messiah, there's another musical representation of the story of Jesus that emerged, which also begins with some of the words from Isaiah 40. Have any of you seen Godspell? Yeah? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's how the musical begins, right? And again, these words come straight from Isaiah 40. Now, Godspell began there because that's where all four of the Gospels begin, as they tell the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote from Isaiah 40, as they begin each of their narratives of what God's up to as Jesus comes to the earth. And by doing this, by quoting from Isaiah 40, The gospel writers show us that there is always a story before the story. There's always a story before the story. The gospels don't begin immediately with Jesus calling his disciples to him. Rather, they begin with John the Baptist in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. There's always a story before the story Before God marches in to rescue his people, his people are stranded in the wilderness, in exile, in desperate need of being rescued. 
And this is where Advent begins. This is where Advent begins. Advent is the story before the story. It's that time of waiting in the dark. It's that longing for rescue from exile. And it's here that God speaks comfort. Oh, comfort my people. And so from God's spell to Handel's Messiah to the gospel writers all the way back to Isaiah. Let's read these words together. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together from the mouth of the Lord. He has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, Herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and for the comfort that you offer to us, your people. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of this text, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just as this text has been set to all different kinds of tunes over the years, it's also inhabited many different contexts through the ages. So I want to consider some of these different contexts together today. 
There's the original context that Isaiah spoke into, but then there's the context that the gospel writers use as they quote this passage. And then ultimately, there's our context today. What does this passage say to us now? So I want to consider each of these together. And so first, Isaiah's original context. Oh, what's going on as he writes or, or, or speaks, cries out these words? Well, the key to understanding much of the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets, is exile. Exile was the defining event of God's people in the later part of the Old Testament. Most of the prophets are either warning the people about a coming exile, speaking, the people, speaking to the people in the midst of exile, or reminding the people after exile. The prophets are always talking about exile. Exile is the key to understanding much of what is being said uh, in the Old Testament and its original context. And so this is what Isaiah is doing. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, he, he's largely warning God's people about exile. Chapter 1 opens up with calls for God's people to repent before their city is destroyed. And then from here, there continue to be warnings throughout the coming chapters to the nation of Israel, as well as many other nations around them. And then in chapter 39, there's an explicit warning that the people and their possessions will be carried off to Babylon. And that's where chapter 40 picks up. The people are scattered in exile, aching to return home aching to see their kingdom restored. Now, last week, we read the people's prayer in chapter 64. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Well, this week, in chapter 40, we're going to hear God's voice. And he speaks, comfort, oh, comfort my people. God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, which literally means speak to her heart. Speak straight to her heart and let her know that this time of exile is over. And so the passage begins with this command to comfort the people. And through the rest of the passage, we hear several voices follow that command. In verse 3, a voice cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. In verse 6, another voice says, cry out. And then in verse 9, the voice of Jerusalem herself joins the chorus to proclaim good tidings. And this is literally the word gospel, good news. And so amidst the chorus of all these cries that, that we see in this passage, there's a couple of images that emerge that, that I want to kind of focus in on. The first image is the one of the Exodus. In verse 3, it says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert 
a highway for our God. And then on in verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You see, all of these words recall the story following the Exodus. Whenever God's people wandered in the wilderness, as they were led by the glorious show of, of the pillars of cloud and fire. You see, exile, where the people are as Isaiah speaks to them, is another kind of wilderness. And the prophet comforts the people by ensuring them that just as before, God will once again lead his people to their land and show them his glory. Just as God delivered the people from Egypt, so will he deliver them from Babylon. This is the word of comfort that the prophet offers. And so there's all this imagery from the Exodus that he's pulling from. But, and we're less likely to notice, this passage also is filled with a great deal of royal imagery as well. The idea of preparing the way in the wilderness is, is a royal idea. Whenever a king would come to visit a city, that city would send all kinds of people out into the wilderness to make sure that the roads were good for his arrival. They would, would go out uh, and, and level them so that when the entourage arrived, they would make it. They would make it to the city. And so you would dig out the hills. You would fill in the valleys. You would make sure that the king had, a, had good accommodations when he got there. And so here, God is the king who is coming to visit. God is the ruler who's, who's actually leading his people as they return to their land. And we see this imagery again towards the end of our passage in verses 10 and 11. It reads, See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. You see, God is a mighty ruler. God is a king. Now, in the history of Israel, who was the greatest king? It's David, right? David is this legendary, great king. David is the one with whom God made an everlasting covenant. David is the one through whom the promised Messiah would come. And see, David was known for being a mighty warrior. This is the kind of king that he was, but he was also known for something else. He was known for being a gentle shepherd as well. And that is the image that is used of God here. In verse 10, God has a mighty arm that rules. But then in verse 11, he has a gentle arm that gathers. God pushes down the powerful mountains of Babylon, and he lifts up the lowly valleys of his people. 
God is the true king who rules not by brute force, but by feeding and gathering, by carrying and leading his people, just like a shepherd. You see, these are the words of comfort that the prophet offers to the people in exile. This is the context that Isaiah is speaking into. But then, hundreds of years later, as the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus, they quote from this passage. The gospel of Mark kicks off immediately, quoting these words. In the very first few verses, Mark is already saying, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And Mark goes on to describe John, the baptizer, appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is a startling Advent text, if we're honest. I mean, as we prepare for Christmas, we're used to candles and Christmas lights. We've got them right here, right? One writer that I was reading this week observed that there are all kinds of these different Advent calendars that you can go get. You know, many of them have, you know, a little drawer you pull out, and there's a nice little treat in there, a little chocolate for you to have each day as you count down to Christmas. You know, some of them maybe made for kids, have these little flaps, you lift them up, and there'll be a little barn animal behind it. And by the end, you know, by the time you get to Christmas, you have the full barn in the manger, right? And you're ready for Christmas. That's what a lot of these Advent calendars are like, but just imagine opening up one of those little flaps to find John the Baptist clothed with camel hair, bits of locust and honey caught in his beard, and he's crying out, repent, you brood of vipers. That would be a startling thing to find. And yet, that's Advent. This is what we find when we open up the little door preparing the way for Jesus in the Gospels. John the Baptist is the one who fulfills this call to comfort God's people and prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist prepares this way. He comforts God's people by calling them to repent. And repentance truly is meant to be a word of comfort. And yet we often receive it as a word of offense. You know, in an individualistic culture where everything is about me, well, repentance is offensive. But the call to repentance truly is meant to be a word of encouragement a word of comfort for God's people. Because what repentance says is that things can be different. Things can be different. Indeed, things will be different. But for the world to change, we must change too. For the world to change, we must be changed. And so we are called to repent. 
You see, the mountains being made low, the valleys being lifted up, the rough places being made smooth is beautiful imagery. But it's terrifying, if we're honest. I mean, Mount Rainier goes off. We're all going to be running, right? But, you know, that's the mountains being brought low and the valleys being raised up. It, it's, it's a terrifying image, and it's hard work because the land that's being leveled is actually the terrain of our hearts. See, there are mountains in our hearts and lives that really need to be demolished. There are rough places that need to be smoothed over. There are also valleys that ought to be lifted up. There are low places that need to be brought high. This is the call of repentance in our lives. It's like the traditional prayer of confession. We confess the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. You see, there are wrong things that we have done. And there are right things that we have not done. There are mountains that need to be leveled. And there are valleys that need to be lifted up. And so we're called to repent of our sins and to follow the Lord who is making a way through the wilderness. And now again, there is royal imagery here, right? And yet the king that John is preparing the way for is just as unlikely as a gentle shepherd. Because Jesus is a king who doesn't rule by killing his enemies, but rather Jesus rules by being killed by his enemies. When God's mighty arm rules, it looks like the cross. And the reward he carries before him, as it says in this passage, is the gift of resurrection. Jesus is the king who has faced death and overcome it. He is the one who reigns in the glory of resurrection, and he is the one who will return to gather us into his kingdom. And that's where we are today, waiting, longing for his return. So there's Isaiah's context, right? There's the, the gospel writer's context of John the Baptist, but what about ours, right? What does this passage say to us today? What does it call us to today? Well, I think on the one hand, there are some ways that we're not all that different from the original audiences of this text. I mean, in a year of global pandemic, we are scattered. We are cut off from much of what we're used to. Life feels a bit like exile. And even apart from the pandemic, there are griefs of sickness 
and death, of anxiety and depression, of isolation and abuse. Just like God's people of ages past, we too are in desperate need of comfort. And so for all of us lost in exile, the words to us are the same as they were to them. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people. God desires to speak straight into our hearts and to tell us that your debt is paid. Not only are our sins covered, we have received double for our sins from God's hand. Right? We are not only forgiven, we're blessed. We're loved. We are God's beloved children. And so from this place of comfort and blessing, receiving from God, we are called to two things. To prepare and to proclaim. From this place of blessing, we are called to prepare and to proclaim. You see, just as John prepared the way for Jesus' first coming, so we, the church, prepare the way for his second coming. And so how can we prepare the way for God to come? This prayer that we pray each week, may your kingdom come. How can we prepare the way for the coming of the Lord in our hearts and in the world around us? What mountains are there that need to be brought low? Right? What sins do we need to repent of? What injustices need to be made right but then there's also the question, what, what valleys need to be made high? Right? What, what are the ways that we can devote ourselves more fully to God in prayer? Who are the ones in most need of love and service that we can reach out to and care for in our lives? You see, this is what it is to prepare the way of the Lord. We are called to prepare. And we are also called to proclaim. Right? At, at the start of the passage that we've been reading today, the prophet was speaking words of comfort to Jerusalem. But by the end of the passage, Jerusalem herself has also joined in to proclaim the good tidings of God. You see, we are people who receive the good news, but we are also a people who share this good news. You know, in a world that is asking the question we talked about last week, where is God? 
The people proclaim here in verse 9, here is your God. Here is your God. But this good news is not what you expect. It's not health and wealth. It's not a great big bang and flash. It's a baby in a manger in the dark of night. It's God hanging on a cross, giving up his life for us. It's this still, small voice of God's Spirit, even now, in our midst, comforting us, speaking tenderly straight to our hearts. This is the good news that we are called to share. And so, who are those with whom you can share these good tidings this season? Whether in word or in deed, we are called to be a people who proclaim this good news. Emmanuel, God with us. And so today, as we move toward the table, uh, we're going to listen to another song together. You know, we've talked about the songs of Handel's Messiah and God's Spell, but there's another Advent song that prepared the way for the coming of Christ, and it sounds actually a lot like this one, where mountains are being brought low and valleys are being brought high. But it's not being sung by a choir and an orchestra, or by someone on Broadway. It's a song sung by a young woman about to give birth. Mary wrote her own song about the coming of Christ. And she sings, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. The mighty one has done great things. And his mercy is for all who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. And he has lifted up the lowly. This is the good news of Advent. So as we come to the table, receive these words. 